Welcome to episode one of the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We have the most incredible list of guests lined up this season, including authors, journalists, climate and soil scientists, organic farmers, chefs, politicians. We're really excited for you to hear their thoughts about the effects of food and agriculture on our planet and on our communities. This first episode is going to be a little different. We want to introduce you to our Real Organic Movement so that you can understand why we exist and why we create an add-on food label to incentivize the growth of Real Organic Practices and what Real Organic Practices even are. We want you to understand what has changed in the organic industry of the United States and why farmers like us have joined forces to do something about it and how that journey has brought us allies, including former Vice President Al Gore and Senator Patrick Leahy, activists like Paul Hawken, Bill McKibben, Vandana Shiva, local food chefs like Alice Waters and Dan Barber, and social justice-focused farmers like Leah Penniman, Karen Washington, and Onika Abraham. So to do that, we're going to play a 15-minute piece first. It covers a glimpse into our story, and it features many of the voices who have joined the Real Organic Project on its short three-year journey. Afterwards, you'll hear a conversation between myself and my co-director, Dave Chapman, and we'll explain more about the first season of our podcast and how the interviews we'll be sharing came to be. All of our podcasts are also available as videos, including this one. Many include beautiful footage of the farmers on their land. So if you ever want to see our guests in person, please visit our website, realorganicproject.org forward slash podcast, and you can watch the video versions of any episode. Okay, let's get started with episode one. We, by our choices, have the power to make or destroy the world. We have to wake up. You know, perhaps if we don't start talking about it and get together on how to save the core values of what organic is and was at the beginning, we'll probably lose it. If you look the other way, things change. So you gotta be very vigilant and see what's going on out there. It's slipping out of our hands. Over 99% of the milk, meat, and eggs in America comes from CAFOs. And I think that most people don't know about this. Can you tell people what a CAFO is? Confined animal feeding operation where thousands of animals are raised in a very small area. Basically, the common usage for the term CAFO is animals in confinement. And then I go past vast feedlots, you know, that have uh, anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 head eating fecal dust uh, mixed with their um, combined corn ration or some kind of concentrate ration that's made to make them gain weight and maximize productivity. And um, it's wrong. It's just wrong. It's really brutal to the animals and to the people around them. In our area, it's chickens. Um, the newest houses that have been built within the last couple of years have 50,000 birds in a barn. So that's up to a million and a half birds on that little parcel of land. It's not responsible, it's not stewardship, it's not husbandry by any stretch of the imagination to have animals in those kind of conditions. And the real shock was when we started to realize that concentrated animal feeding operations were getting certified as organic. Organic means healthy soil and pasture. Because when you're buying organic eggs right now, you're not getting pastured eggs. And you really have to search hard to find out. There's no other way to know what you're getting is what you think you're buying. It's crazy. And nobody sees it. We don't feel it. The way it's, uh, it's built up, you know, we, we never kind of understand the impact of when we buy these meats at the, at the grocery stores and the lack of alternatives and um, it's just, it's 
absolutely terrible. There's, there's a huge shift underway towards large confinement, uh, organic and name-only operations in the western United States that milk, you know, 5, 10, 15,000 cows and somehow are supposed to even meet the 30% dry matter intake from pasture uh, rule, um, which they don't. And now the, the same thing is happening in the organic market that's happened in the conventional market where all the family-scale farms are being forced out of business by these large corporate entities. We are closing our California Cloverleaf Farms dairy, which was our first organic dairy, because we have not been paid a price that keeps us in a sustainable mode. Uh, right now we're very brokenhearted about having to close the doors to our dairy. If the capos went out of business, the quote organic capos went out of business because uh, the rules were enforced, it definitely would make a more lucrative market for for small family farmers that were doing it right. I've said that CAFOs are kind of the epitome of everything that's wrong with industrial agriculture. You can see it there. And the big corporations that control them, that's concentration of market power, concentration of corporate power as well. We have an NOP, um, an NOSB, I even think our OMRI boards are all compromised with industry representatives who are dead set on the expansion of corporate organic. And the backbone of this is this so-called organic grain that's imported. The U.S. doesn't uh, produce enough organic grain to meet demand, so we've seen a rise in imports. And several years ago, uh, organic grain farmers in the U.S. started to notice that cheaper imports from uh, suspicious areas in the world where there have been known problems started to really flood the market here. The Washington Post in May of 2017 documented three huge vessel loads of uh, grain that came into the U.S. and was not uh, legitimately organic. Along the way, um, it, it magically became uh, organic grain. The, the documents were changed. In doing that, I think the price roughly doubled. So, and it was a whole ship, basically, of grain. So. There's a lot, of, a lot of money to be made. Combine the fact that you're getting cheap imported grain that is often going to large agribusinesses who are also not uh, adhering to the spirit of the law and certainly not the letter. It's nearly impossible for many of the real organic farmers to compete. And of course, consumers aren't getting what they, they pay for. There's real organic and then there's organic by default. We have seen a dilution of organic principles. You know, and it's, it points entirely to why um, hydroponic production being labeled organic is ridiculous. They're saying, go ahead, go out, out there and compact this land and laser level it, which makes it basically unsuitable for farming, and then cover it in plastic, and then put plastic pots out there and we're going to let you call that organic. Instead of, of looking at the quality of the organic product, the profit motive came in. And I think that's what kind of made the, the big change and why uh, the board lost the fight for uh, uh, hydroponics being organic. What we got was we got more food on the shelves certified as organic, but we didn't get more organic farming. And the result of it is that the whole economic landscape is changing. So if you want a blueberry or a strawberry or a tomato or a pepper or some greens that is organic, and you don't want it to be hydroponic, you no longer have any way of going in the store and telling what you're buying. And what's happening in the store is more and more and more of the certified organic production of those crops is becoming hydroponic, and it's going to continue. That's a huge problem for people like me because um, allowing that hydroponic, that cheap hydroponic system, the disposable plastic farms, to be labeled as organic in the same way that this farm is labeled as organic, 
creates a situation where on the shelf the consumers have no idea. They both say USDA organic and they may have different prices but they, they have no idea what it is that they're buying or how it was grown because the, the standards are uh, so lax and they've been eroded so much and the, there's just so much lack of integrity now in the USDA's administration of the National Organic Program. I don't understand how any enterprise that isn't building soil could possibly be certified organic. The life forms in the soil itself are absolutely critical to good, regenerative, real, organic farming. How you get those things to dance together biologically into forms that actually can nourish a living organism, that's the magic that happens in the soil. Um, and that's really where I think if we can get people to understand that and think about that and recognize the importance of it, you can start to ground why it's so important in terms of how we grow our food is just as important as what we eat. Unless we build and rebuild soil fertility, we will never achieve long-term um, success in cultivation generationally. And so the organic farms that are really struggling across the country are the places where the organic standards are weak. Organic dairy, organic grain, organic pastured poultry, soil-grown organic tomatoes. All of these organic farmers are competing under a different definition of what organic is, and they're being driven out of business. Grain coming into this country and being certified as organic that's not actually organic. That's a big deal. Uh, confinement dairies getting certified and not actually putting animals out on pasture. That's a big deal. Hydroponics, a soilless growing system, being certified as organic. I mean, the hydroponic thing alone is enough, I think, for most people to, to be like, well, wake up. What does organic even mean at this point? When organic can actually mean, you know, these huge mega corporations that are draining aquifers, exploiting workers and torturing animals, then that word actually doesn't have meaning anymore. And so to reclaim language and infuse it with our deep sense of truth um, and our ethical compass is crucial. In the long run, if the term organic loses its integrity, then we all will suffer and lose for it. When corporations started changing what could be certified as organic, farmers protested. And when they were ignored, they came together and they formed the Real Organic Project to be able to communicate once again to the consumers how they farm. The organic farmers who helped create and shape the organic movement as we know it do not want to give up on their, the name organic. It means something and it's not hydroponics. It's not CAFOs. It might have the USDA certified logo on it, but we know that it's not real organic. And so the only system of agriculture that is going to feed human beings in perpetuity is one that is creating its fertility from the things you're doing. It works. It really works. We're feeding the world, or at least our little part of it here. It would facilitate what we're trying to do if, if you would just label these products as for what they are and then let the consumer decide. That's how the market works. The consumer will look at what it is and then decide, and then I think all of us could get along better, you know. If we can have integrity in the marketplace and sell food and label it accordingly, I think we will win. I think that consumers will, if they given an honest choice, and say this is real organic, and this is hydro USDA organic, I think the real organic is going to do just fine in the sales. There's not a big movement saying, we want hydroponic food. Just like there's not a big movement saying, we want our milk to come from confinement operations. If you, if you had a, a milk carton and had a picture of a cow in a feedlot, and then you had one of the cow in the pasture and you said, these are honest pictures. Which one are people going to buy? They're going to buy the one of the cow in the pasture and they're going to pay more for it. And they should. And what's happening right now is they're buying one 
of the cow from the feedlot, but it's got a picture of the cow in the pasture on it. The Real Organic Project can alert consumers to dairy products that are produced from grass-based farms, um, produced according to the Real Organic standards. And so I think that we can accomplish that. Well, the Real Organic Project, to me, is a grassroots effort of farmers who have instigated and grown organic that much of the industry has ridden on the back of now and moved away from and they're not paying attention to it. It's time to bring the, the purposes and the work and all the beliefs of what organic was back to the forefront and create a farmer-led movement, um, a, a consumer collaboration where they're supporters of Real Organic Project and looking for the Real Organic label as a way to to, to blunt the, the direction that this, this whole organic industry is growing and being, bring back some of the fundamental principles. Um, we have to fight for it. It's the first opportunity I've seen where farmers are getting together and trying to explain to the public what's going on and offering an alternative. As more and more farmers start using this new label and consumers start seeing it, it will have viable change that we're hoping it will because it gives consumers and farmers a chance to distinguish between growing practices. And I think that they do care. Or enough of them do to make a difference. It just takes a few people to make a change. We just have to stay together, be smart about it. Little by little, a group like this can change a bigger part of the organic movement. Lindley Dixon and I are going to have a conversation about the Real Organic Project and the symposium that we put together in January of 2021 and the many interviews that we did to make up that symposium. And those interviews uh, are now being released as podcasts. So Lindley, <laughs> here we Hi, are. Hi Dave. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. We learned a lot, huh? Man, was it fantastic to talk to, what, over 70 people. We took 70 hours of footage and condensed them into about 10 for the symposium. So this podcast is a chance for everybody to get to hear the entire interview that we ended up editing for the, the symposium. That's right. Even more than 70 hours because there were farmer interviews on top of the, the 70 we did just for the symposium. So we ended up here because COVID came and our in-person symposium that was to be at Dartmouth, it was canceled two to three weeks before it was supposed to go live. And uh, so we had to recoup. And we had done so much work to get ready for that symposium. And then we were in free fall, like everybody in the world. Um, everybody had a life plan for that period. One of the things that I saw in that shift, I think we had an amazing symposium planned for Dartmouth, an in-person one for that April of 2020. But one of the things that we saw is that even though we lost the ability to have people come together in a room, which is so valuable, we had the, the opportunity to be able to talk to people anywhere in the world and engage them in these subjects that we considered really important. So suddenly we could talk to Vandana Shiva in India and we could talk to Walter Yena and Stuart Hill in Australia and we could talk to Nora Taleb in Germany and, and to Paul Holmbeck in Denmark. It was, it was pretty great, right? That was so fun when we started building out this guest list. And we thought, oh my goodness, look who's coming. Look who's saying yes, you know, because they had time too to join us for an hour, whereas before they would have had to travel. So it really did open the guest list to pretty much everybody. I'm so proud of who we put together. Yeah, and, and it was wonderful because they were so willing to do it. Um, you know, so many of them were tracking us. Many of them had already come out in public support of uh, uh, what the Real Organic Project's doing. 
All of them cared about the subjects we were talking about. So could you describe how we broke the symposium out into subject matter? Yeah, there are so many connections and in, into why we're doing what we're doing and why it matters that the farms that are losing market share, it's, it's more than just that farm, the loss of that farm. It's the loss of something bigger than that. And we started to connect the dots. So there were five sessions that the, the farm's practices that are real organic that we were trying to promote were also connected to soil health and soil health was connected to climate. And because the healthy soil was there, the nutrition of the food was different. And that all of this is joined together by um, creating awareness and education, part of a greater movement than the individual farm. And so that ended up becoming our five sessions. Yeah, I think it's important to say the first session was, how did we get here? And um, a lot of my, my journey through this has been to actually understand where we are, what's going on. I know when I, when I began uh, trying to bring the National Organic Program to greater integrity, I thought it was a much smaller issue. I thought, in the beginning, I thought we were really just talking about one company that had wrongly gotten um, certified as organic for hydroponic production. And I thought it was a bad thing, but relatively small. And I thought that we could get it changed by, by petitions and reaching out to the National Organic Program. And I was very wrong. Um, I was very wrong that it would be easy to change because I didn't realize um, who we were up against, what companies we were up against. I didn't realize the extent of, of uh, the hydroponic invasion of organic, which is the huge. dollar amount of the it. The dollar amount, by, by their own claim, it's, it's over a billion dollars of certified hydroponic production that's being you know, certified as organic. But I also, as I got into it, and as I started to go to these meetings of the advisory board, the uh, National Organic Standards Board, to petition them to please get it together. And actually, the National Organic Standards Board had already, years before, recommended that hydroponic not be certified as organic. And I started to meet people like you. I'd never met you before. And I started to meet a whole community, and I realized that these people had been working on this for years. I had not. I'd just been farming. And... And they had been trying to fight the, the loss of integrity that was getting greater and greater, and not just, not just around uh, hydroponics, but also around CAFOs, around concentrated animal feeding operations, the big confinement livestock of dairy and meat and eggs, and, and also around fraud, grain fraud in particular, also around the failure to actually enforce the rules for dairy. And I was like, oh my God, this isn't small, this is huge. And I, I, I grew up you know, farming in Vermont. Well, that's not true. I grew up farming in Pennsylvania, but I, I became an organic farmer in Vermont. And organic farming in Vermont is completely what I thought organic was. And these things of CAFOs and hydros wasn't happening in Vermont. I didn't know anything about it. And as I started to see the national and international scene, I realized we had, we had a serious problem on our hands. And we were trying to take the next step too between all of those farms that were suffering because of the weakening of the USDA organic standards and, and educate the consumers about it, bring them along too, because we need each other. The farms need the eaters to exist and the eaters need to you know, be able to find a way to authentically purchase the right food and not be fooled by the marketing. I remember talking to my cousin and he was so proud of what a deal he had gotten on this huge jar of salsa. It was like $2.99 and thinking, you know, th these aren't the values that I know my cousin wants to support. So I started talking to him about it. And he said, well, I don't trust any of the labels anymore because, you know, they all say that they're doing this and then they just charge above it. And so I'd prefer to just get the cheaper one that doesn't, that's not trying to trick me. So he felt just the whole shopping experience, he was being tricked and there was so much marketing dollars behind it. 
And we were seeing that too, right? We were seeing the picture of the uh, animals on pasture and we knew the reality behind where that food was coming from. Same thing with the tomatoes. You know, if you, if you ask any hydroponic grower, at least the big ones, they'll deny that they're growing hydroponically. So we just, we'd lost honesty and transparency in the marketplace. And because of that, the eaters are smart. You know, they're, they don't want to be fooled. They don't want to pay more for the same product. And so we were driving people away from the organic label because they were starting to realize that they were getting fooled. And so it was a way to kind of pull everybody back and say, wait a minute here, there's all these farms that are still really legitimately organic. And there's this beautiful law behind them that we just need to enforce. And so it was kind of a way to bring the organic community back together and the eaters with us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is a good law, um, and it's not being enforced. Um, and I think people are right that that it's very hard to tell what's going on because we're we're really dealing with professionals who are very good at confusing us and misleading us, and we see it over and over. One of the things that, for me, inspired the symposium. A friend uh, years ago asked me, he said, well, he's a good person who cares about food, cares about the climate, cares about uh, government with integrity. He said, I don't understand why hydroponic wouldn't be called organic if they're using, if they're using natural inputs. And um, I said, well, that's a good question. I'm not even sure I have the language to answer that. I mean, I I, I do have language, but I want to dive deeper into it. And that deeper dive was, was for me, the real, the real inspiration for session two, which is soil health. And why does soil health matter? And really, to really get it, I mean, session two described what soil health is, but to really understand why it matters, you have to go to sessions three and four, which is climate and nutrition. And, you know, we knew that there were connections, strong connections between how we farmed and, um, and the climate and the environment and the water, the air. We knew that there were strong connections between how we farmed and the nutrition of the food. That, that is the, the core principle of organic farming is that how you treat the soil very much affects the nutrition of the food and your health and the animal's health and the plant health. But it was such a privilege for me to get to talk to so many people who were, you know, had spent their lives studying little, little parts of this. And, you know, when I think of the people that we had in the soil health, like, like Stuart Hill, and Walter Yenna, and I, 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 there are just so many. Um, it was such a privilege to talk to them. And when we went to climate... Stuart and his farming mites, right? <laughs> yes, Stuart was, was um, right, the, how, the, how the small soil animals will, will be farming the microbes for their own diet and had been doing this for a very long time. In climate, we talked to Al Gore, which was for me quite a privilege to be interviewing Al Gore, whose farm is certified with the Real Organic Project. And we got to talk with Bill McKibben, who is not that distant a neighbor here in Vermont and who has done such amazing work. Um, Just real climate leaders that already knew that the connection between climate and agriculture was so intimate, so it was so obvious to them too why they would be invited to talk about what real organic is. Yeah. You know, they've already had that connection, soil health and climate. Yeah. Not everybody does though. Yeah, Walter Yenna again was for me one of the great teachers explaining these connections to me. Um, you know, and 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 then nutrition, right? And talking to Joan Gussow and um, uh, Mark Schatzker and Fred Provenza, these people who are just so eloquent, who have spent years studying studying nutrition and seeing the connection. Oh, and Anne Beclay and David Montgomery, and the connection between 
how the food is grown and, and what the nutrition of the food is for us and what the health consequences are. Really interesting conversations. Yeah, Anne Buckley in particular, just her her voice, these fetching fungi, you know, they're out in the grocery store finding what they need and bringing it back, what the plant needs and bringing it back to it. I think she she's so vibrant when she tells the stories of what's going on under the soil. And, the and when she came to uh, Dartmouth for our first symposium, she put this big picture of a brain over the entire soil surface as if it's just this organism that's all interconnected and bringing yeah. it all together for the plant to actually be healthy and then ultimately for us to be healthy when we eat the plant. Yeah, and she and her husband, David Montgomery, are soon to have a book coming out exactly about that subject, that you are what you ate, ate. <laughs> it's, really, right. it's really great, which again is the foundational principles of organic agriculture. What we've seen is that organic has actually become successful in the marketplace, that that principle is being obscured and, and, and often lost. And people coming to organic see organic uh, entirely as less pesticides, and, which is great, very important. We, we celebrate that and we celebrate that people come because they don't want to eat poison on their food. But organic was always intended as far more than that. It was intended on food that's not just not bad for you, but food that is actually good for you. And it's, it's a big difference. And that is what organic agriculture was intended um, when it began as a political movement in the 30s and 40s. And it, 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 it came as a reaction, as a response to the increasing chemical agriculture, which was becoming huge at that point, but has, has become massive since then. And I think that a lot of that was lost when the law started to only look at the final product instead of the farm and the systems. And so the National Organic Program somehow interpreted the law to say, well, if the final product is clean, clean and, and not what's in it, right? But what's, what's left off of it, which is pesticides, but they're not even looking about, you know, what, what is in the nutrition of that final product. So anyway, instead, and the Real Organic Project, as we've gone through our certification, instead of just looking at the final product and saying, is this USDA organic or Real Organic Project, putting a label on it, we're looking at the farm and saying, how, how do the farm systems play out into our idea of what real organic is? And the entire farm needs to comply with that definition as opposed to just the single product. And that's a very different way. And I think it goes back to the origins of the organic movement because we're, we're ultimately trying to farm in an, a way that's organic, not just produce a final product because we, we realize how much our whole farm it connects to the groundwater and the, you know, the health of the air and the soils and everything around the community. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think, you know, it's like that Supreme Court justice who's, when asked what was pornography, and he said, I know it when I see it. I think we actually know what real organic is when we see it. But it's very hard to come up with a rule and set of standards that are verifiable over a, a wide range to get to that. And those standards, when you do do them, are easily twisted. That's, that's what session one is about, is, you know, do we have a national organic program that we are proud of and that we can support and that is, is giving people what they want to buy? And one of my favorite, favorite uh, examples of this is if we, we, it's common now that we have these large confinement dairy operations certifying their, their, their herd and their milk as organic. And all of the organic farmers, all of the organic community goes, that's not organic. So how do you tell that? One way I said is if you just put a picture of, of that cow standing on that feedlot, on that cement feedlot, and put that on the, on the carton of the milk, right, on the cover of the milk carton, and then you put a picture of Francis Tickey or of uh, Jack and Ann Laser of their cow standing out in a field of pasture, and you showed people those two milk cartons, and you said, well, which one would you like to buy? 
which one do you think is really organic? Everybody would choose the one with the cow in the pasture. And you say, yeah, but that one costs more. They say, that's fine. Take my money. That's what I want. So I think that in the end, and I, I think that's true for hydroponics too. If you showed a picture of Hugh Kent's blueberries growing in the soil, it's so beautiful there. And, and you showed a picture of a Driscoll's, you know, totally... Green versus plastic everywhere. Versus plastic. It's it's they're just plastic farms, right? Mm -hmm. And you showed that, again, put that on the cover of the, of the blueberry container and said, well, which one do you want to buy? Everyone's going to pick Hugh Kent's beautiful thing growing in this grass. And they're going to say, yeah, but that one costs more. Yeah, take my money. It's worth it. That's what I want to eat. And that, I think, is what the Real Organic Project is about. Because right now, people go to the store. They can't tell. The pictures are not honest. I've seen beautiful video of a hydroponic place, and it's kind of soft focus from the waist down. So you can't see the pots. And they have these nice young people, you know, who look like kind of very clean cut hippies. And no, they're just models, right? This is not what it really looks like at, the, at that production facility. So how do we get past the fraud? How do we get, they, these companies, the, and they are multinational corporations, they know what people want. They know how to appeal to them. And what they do is they make their farms look as if they're real organic, but they are. It was incredible to see the effect in traveling for the Real Organic Project, all these farms, that that lack of transparency was having on the farms. So, you know, we got the story of the milk house, and they're a young dairy that maybe got 50 cows or something like that, maybe even less, but they were dropped by Horizon, you know, a few days before I visited. And it's because they can get away with putting, you know, Horizon can still put the picture of what looks like a milk house farm and, and the majority of their milk is coming from mega dairies that are mostly feedlot cattle because they're milked three or four times a day and you can't get them out to pasture and back far enough away from the milk house three or four times, you know, to, to come in for milking. So the pasture, you know, you're going to get further and further away throughout the season. And it just becomes a point when you have that many cows, you, you physically can't do it. So they just stay in the feedlots. And that's not the picture that they're putting on the carton. So it has a real effect on these farms. And we were able to tell their stories. So we had these amazing, um, you know, movement leaders that became part of the symposium. And we were juxtapositioning them next to the farmers that were really going through something, losing markets, um, having trouble communicating to their customers why pasture is so important, why healthy soil is so important. And so that, that became a way to elevate their voice is to put the, them next to some of these leaders. And it was really fun to get to see some of the farmers and the, you know, the farms that I visited, you know, right there next to some of our stars. Yeah. So one thing that was, um, for me, uh, a, gr a growing in my understanding in the last five years was the introduction of race as a topic um, in the organic community. And I will say that there, there are definitely people in the organic community who do not welcome that. Um, I say, well, wait, uh, you know, that might be important, but what does that have to do with how our food is grown with, um, with good know, food? Yeah. With, 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 with everything. And, um, and I think that what I see is that in the last five years, um, race has become a part of the conversation for every community in America. Uh, and, I feel like, well, my God, if NASCAR is talking about race, it seems to me that organic ought to be talking about race too. And so that was something that we did bring into the symposium consciously. And we had tremendous interviews and they weren't just about race. The interviews weren't just about race, but we had tremendous interviews with people that in certainly included conversations about race with Leah Penniman and with uh, Karen Washington and with Jennifer Taylor and uh, Jesse Bowie and Onika Abraham. You got to do a lot of those interviews. What was it like? Oh, I particularly remember Kanoke talking about uh, how he had to overcome personally the trauma on the land and feel that it was okay 
for him to go back and love the land and work the land. And so his story, uh, you know, I, I wonder how common that is for other black people to feel like, you know, where's my place here? And I remember uh, Karen Washington really stressing the importance of sharing those stories with each other because uh, there's there's too much of a lack of understanding of of what well the baggage that all of us carry around with us and in order to relate to anyone you need to be open to sharing your story and you need to listen to other people's stories and that was really the theme of her of her talk is all of these race problems are because we don't listen and and we don't share our stories yeah so one of the things that was uh kind of exciting was to talk to some of the big vision people. Uh, Paul Hawken, Alan Savory, Seth Godin, um, Kat Taylor, Paul Holmbeck, Annalise Orlick, people who are looking at this from a very systemic point of view instead of uh, from the point of view of one farm, you know, or one crop, but they're looking at like, what's, what's going on? What, do, what are we doing? Um, and how do we do it better? How do we create the world we want to live in, maybe the world we need to live in if we're to survive, instead of the world that these corporations want us to live in because it's more profitable for them? One of the interesting, are you, sorry, did you have a- No, go ahead. The, to see that, you know, corporations aren't always the problem too. You know, we had like Bronner and Patagonia representatives from those places where they really can be part of the solution. But I remember when you were interviewing David Grinspoon and he told the story about the hole in the ozone and how they denied it. People producing those compounds denied it, denied it, denied it until they found the replacement chemicals that no longer caused the problems. And then they were all in favor of promoting it. And so it's always interesting to me. You know, I think I think it's one thing to just say, well, you know, we're never going to shop at Walmart again. But I think the next generation is asking, well, how do we get Walmart to change? You know, and if that's even possible. So I like that we interviewed some people that are part of corporations that are doing good. And that's that's always a question to me is, is can you can you actually change them or is there some, you know, uh, limit? to how big or how out of control, um, you know, a corporation gets before they can really create real change because ultimately then they end up having to um, talk down about something, some other part of what they're still trying to sell. So can they really come to our side and, you know, create change across the entire organization or just a token change? And that's kind of one of the themes. I think that actually might be the theme of next year's symposium. It's It's such an important question. I will say that the corporations you mentioned are all privately held family corporations. That's true. They're That's not true. public corporations. Yeah. And I don't actually know of examples of public corporations that uh, really stand with us. It's, I think we're seeing this, this debate play out right now in the regenerative movement. And, um, you know, all the multinational corporations have now said, we're regenerative, right? Walmart, um, Bear Monsanto, McDonald's, you know. They've never said we're organic, ever. No, 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 no. (laughs) But General Mills, which has an organic branch, but now now they're much more excited about being regenerative. What does that mean? And and I am enormously suspicious, not of the pioneers of the regenerative agriculture movement, but of these corporations that, just as they did with with organic and walmart is the biggest organic vendor in america for sure right so if you want to know where most organic food is sold it's sold in walmart not real organic not real organic i don't think there's at the moment any real organic sold in walmart so i think it's a very interesting question whether a big corporation can in fact stand for something like this, which is not going to be cheaper. That's the reason that uh, that the organic label is so uh, debased is because there is money to be made and the corporations came in and they do what they do, which is we'll make it cheaper and we'll make it more uniform 
and we'll make it so it's all the same. It's everything that Alice Waters said in our thing about fast food culture. These are the values of fast food culture. And I'm not saying that something is bad because it's inexpensive, but I'm saying by and large, as Michael Olson rather brilliantly said, cheap food isn't. It's not cheaper. It's cheaper at the cash register, and that's the only place. And the rest of the day, you'll pay and you'll pay and you'll pay for what you got such a good deal on at the, at the checkout counter. So if we start to take that on, and I think that the symposium did, but if we, if we go a little further with it, maybe next year, about the ways in which economics play out, you had a great interview with John Eichert. He's like my favorite economist, certainly my favorite ag economist. And he talked about this, you know, um, very grippingly. Well, and Alan Lewis, too, talks about the realities of why we can't find shelf space for choice for a tomato. And yet you've got a million choices in the processed aisle. But how, you know, and, and that's a really that was an eye opener for me because I didn't realize why produce was different from everything else but there's this shrink thing and so if you want to understand why it's so difficult to find real organic produce really good produce in the in the co-ops and the grocery stores too listen to that interview because there's a whole world of of um, algorithms and systems that just keep the small farmers out and the real the real organic farmers too that actually were in the wholesale markets and are starting to lose that shelf space so he was really educational for me yeah i think that's an important thing for people to realize that the real organic project is not just created to protect farmers it's created to protect everybody who wants to buy that food because we are literally losing the choice in the market right now it's falling off the shelf you know, blueberries like those that come from Cane Grove are not going to be something you can buy in the store. You're going to buy something else. It's going to be hydroponic if it's a blueberry. It's, it's, it's coming very quickly. And so if you're, the same is true for milk. There still are some small dairies even at places like Horizon. But it's quite possible they're just being kept for the photo opportunity. I don't know. No, but I, I do agree. know that they're... They're being put out of the business in droves right now because the price keeps dropping as the production becomes more industrial, lower quality, but, but uh, we can make a lot of it and we can, we can ship it anywhere. And it's you know, only because we've lost that transparency. If we hadn't lost that, I don't think that would exist because we, we know people want to buy the other. And, and we've got all these private labels now, so it makes it really difficult to figure out where the milk's coming from. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a famous thing called A Thousand um, True Fans. A, a man named Kevin Kelly came up with it. And he said, in the, in the age of the internet, artists, for example, can make a living. All they need is a thousand true fans. And those people who really are all in and will support their work. So we got thinking, well, how about if we had a thousand real fans? How many people does it take to change the world, right? How many organic uh, activists does it take to change a light bulb? And, and we thought, you know, if we had a thousand real fans, that would actually be quite powerful. I know we're, we're, we're talking about a country with whatever, 350 million people. And I'm sure there's 4 million people in America who really care about what we care about. But how do we connect everybody? How do we weave all those threads into a fabric that has impact and that can start to change the food system. And it will be changed ultimately by a small number growing into a bigger number. So the idea was, well, let's see if we can build a thousand real fans. And um, it's a wonderful thing. We asked people, if you would donate $100 a year to help us coordinate this and uh, say that you would like to do something, not just read something, but do something and help us in some way to coordinate, to spread the word, to, to help people understand. That's what the real fans are about. So yeah. how's that working, Lindley? Well, we've got them writing their legislators and going into their stores and telling their produce buyers, well, do you know about Real Organic Project? Do you know about well, like which of the produce that you're carrying is hydroponic? What about the meat and eggs and milk? Is, is that coming from a CAFO? So just trying to raise awareness at the stores 
And then, of course, telling your friends and forwarding weekly letters that we send out and, you know, just trying to build a community about this concept behind the concept of real organic. And, and it's you, growing. We've got about 300 members and we need could more. You tell so, people about the, could you tell people about the knitting group? We have, yeah, we've got a knitting group that's writing letters to Amish farmers so that they can be aware of the movement too and become a Real Organic Project certified farm. So there's lots of ways to uh, help us out and we want that list to keep growing. So, so that's the ask behind the podcast too. If you're inspired, please go to our website and join a thousand real fans. So that's what the symposium's about and that's what the Real Organic Project's about. Um, and I hope that um, you have curiosity about what we're doing and uh, a desire to maybe dive in a little deeper and, you know, maybe you're, you're cooking breakfast or something. I don't mean to distract you, but you might like to listen to some of these people. We're going to start releasing the, the podcasts probably two a week for the next 30 or 40 weeks, close to a year. Um, and I hope that you'll come and join us and dive into some of the some of the complexity of the conversation. It's not simple. People who try and make this simple are are not telling the truth. These are not simple ideas, not simple conversations. And that's why it's important, because if we just rely on a label, even on the real organic label, in the end, it's not going to work out. We need to become informed. Yeah. How much did you learn, Dave? I learn so much all the time. It's and it's it's so exciting. So yeah, I'm really I have a great job. <laughs> all right. Well thank you, Lindley. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends about it, and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to today's conversation, can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode one. Please join us next time for an interview with Paul Hawken, the author of Drawdown. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms.